Well, we're going to go to our Lord in prayer. What a wonderful congregation. All these services, opportunities, Father, to explore your word together, reflecting upon who you are, reflecting upon what you've done, wanting to keep Jesus Christ first in our lives, first in our worship, first. And so, Father, if there's any coming here today that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe their mindset is bent towards the secular, then I pray, Lord, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll engage the secular mindset, the secularist, and get them thinking the tough questions and the addressing the ultimate issues of life. Who are you? Why am I here? What does all this mean? Where is all this going? What's the outcome? But there's also religionists rather than secularists that appear on the scene. They're, they're familiar with the creeds and they're familiar even with the scriptures. They know something about God but might lack a relationship with God. What we're praying, Father, is that you're going to engage that heart as well as the mind and stir them to think seriously about what matters most. Not outward religionists, but total relationship. So, Father, may that be a work that takes place through the Holy Spirit this morning. We're opening your word. It's true, it's applicable, it's relevant. Though written in ages past, it stands the test of time. We realize that if it's not eternal, it's out of date when it comes to thinking. We're dealing with what's eternal, which always seems to break into the temporal. And the stuff we're dealing with in 2018. So no matter what it is that someone here is dealing with today in any of these services, speak to that mind, speak to that heart, and draw them to you. So Father... Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. So again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. Pray these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stepping off the ship from crossing the Aegean from Greece into Turkey, I was struck with the graffiti out on the streets of Turkey. Uh, a lot of political statements being made against the leader Erdogan. Fascinating that a coup had taken place in Turkey, 2016, and among those that were incarcerated was Andrew Brunson. Now, Andrew Brunson was a pastor. It's a pastor who has ministered faithfully for God's glory, incarcerated over the course of these years for alleged ties to an outlawed group. On Friday morning, what appeared on the screen of your computer was that he had been ordered freed, sentenced to time served, a Turkish judge ruled. 
Fox News writes, the decision ended a, a tense diplomatic standoff between the U.S. and Turkey that had begun following Brunson's October 2016 arrest. The pastor was facing terror and espionage-related charges and was detained by Turkey as part of a government crackdown following a failed coup attempt months previous. This Friday, Brunson appeared at the prison complex in Izmir for his fourth hearing, telling a courtroom that he is, quote, an innocent man, unquote. And it's what he said next that seizes our attention. Quote, I love Jesus. I love Turkey, he told the judge, unquote. Can you imagine the ripple effect across the world when a statement like that is made? They pressed him further. Our church, we helped everyone, Kurds, Arabs, without showing any discrimination. As a result, upon his release, he found himself one day in a prison complex, a subsequent day in the Oval Office, meeting yesterday with the President of the United States. This is how God works. He takes the extremes of life, he takes the hardships of life. And right when you think that this is the be-all, end-all of your experience when it comes to hardships, lo and behold, something of significance occurs, and the next thing you know, you've got an opportunity to have impact that you otherwise would never have had. This morning, if you're going through hardships, extremes, difficulties, that's what this book is all about. What you need to do is to explore the depths and the breadth of 2 Corinthians and the hardships that are there and the overarching victorious statement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ imprinted upon these verses and see how they relate to your own personal experience. I want to talk about two, two reminders that we need to be able to embrace when we're, when we're being personally attacked, in this case defending the faith, Two reminders. And the first reminder flows out of verse 7 down through verse 12. That when being personally attacked, defending the faith, like a Brunson and others. Well, remember first of all to focus upon Christ alone. In verse 7, what you and I do here is we find ourselves being introduced to the word look. Now, the natural tendency when we are being attacked or being challenged or when we're going through life's difficulties is to find our eyes fleeting, moving in various directions. What interests me is that the Greek word here that was used for look was the word blepo, which described the scene when the apostles John and Peter appeared at the tomb of Jesus Christ. John looks in, and he and he's basically glancing. He's looking, but he tends to be looking around. He has not yet done what our first point requires of us to focus. After all, this is a crisis moment, and typically in crises moments, the natural tendency is to lose your focus. You see. 
Peter comes in, and he, typical Peter moment, barges into that tomb, and instead of blepo, the Greek word used here, his word is theoreo. He's trying to figure this out. He's developing his theories as to what's happened. But now the reflective one, the apostle John, as burly as Peter is, fisherman, comes in, and this time the Greek word arao, we are told that literally he saw with understanding. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing for you and me at this point is that he is saying, let's start with a blepo moment. You and I are going to have to narrow our focus, you see. Last night, when I was finishing up reviewing and memorizing for this morning's services, when all was said and done, went downstairs, it was about 9 o'clock, and Boston was playing Houston, unfortunately. Boston lost, Houston won. But you see, I was struck by the intensity of the focus of Justin Verlander, how he would pitch his way into at least the sixth inning and narrowing his focus upon what was being called behind the plate by the catcher. There was an intensity to that focus there. Now, what you and I have to do is that certainly we need a broad awareness, but simultaneously we need a narrowed focus. Some people try to focus upon the broad. He's saying focus upon the narrow, but be aware of the broad. Others who are more gullible are so focused upon the narrow that they miss out on the awareness of the broad. We need both. But we need an awareness of the broad, and we need to be focused upon the narrow. And so what he is now doing for you and for me is that in the crises of life, the difficulties of life, he himself under attack, so he's speaking experientially, look. Look at what is before your eyes. Pause there. Take the sum total of what, what's there. An economist was asked to talk to a group of business people about the recession of years past. She tacked up, and you know the story, a big sheet of white paper. She made a black spot on the paper with her pencil, asked a man in the front row what he saw. The man replied promptly, a black spot. The speaker asked every person the same question. Each replied, a black spot. Yes, she said. But what you have failed to see is the big sheet of white paper. Now, what we need to do is to understand the sum total of what we are addressing when under attack. So now he has got a both wide lens approach of awareness, but a narrowed approach to focus. Do both, not one to the exclusion of the other, if you're going to live life wisely. Now, just as the apostles at that tomb moved from blepo through theoreo till they got to orao, likewise now what the apostle Paul is doing is saying, look, look at what is before your eyes. Don't miss it. And likewise, you and me, when we are dealing with the big issues of life, he now adds this. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we.
And you say, Garrett, where's he coming from? What's that all about? When you and I look at this at this point, what we bear in mind is that the adversaries to the Apostle Paul, there's something parasitic about their approach. Paul would appear on the scene, start a church, then they would appear on the scene, and what Paul would build up, they would tear down. What Paul would teach, they would come in once he would leave and distort what he said. And people were left wondering, well, is that what Paul meant? Is that what Paul said? And then all of a sudden, confusion reigned. Yet they claimed to be belonging to Jesus. But that was their claim. Now, what he will do at this point is not dispute their claim at this moment. They'll take some doing and undoing and redoing. What he will do, though, is to establish his claim. He belongs to. And so there you have it now, where you find yourself there in verse 7, where he says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you take a deep breath and you say, I belong. And then you go into a certain room in your house and say, hey, Google, play some Lauren Daigle. And lo and behold, you say appears. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I'll never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know, said you. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm held and I'm falling short. When I don't, when I don't belong. Ah. You say that I'm yours, and I believe. I believe. And if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also, so also are we. And when I don't belong, uh, you say, I'm yours. And I believe. I believe. Is that where you're at right now? Well, the Apostle Paul takes a deep breath because he just got you out of verse 7 and he's got you up now to verse 8, doesn't he? And there he adds, for if if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building up, not for destroying you, I will not, I will not be ashamed. And you see, Gary, well, at this point, then it seems to be that the Apostle Paul is recommending in some way, shape, or form boasting. I thought Christianity was all about, among other things, when it comes to the way we view ourselves, humility. Well, at the root of this multifaceted attack that the Apostle Paul is experiencing, there is the problem of boasting, and the word boast will appear in chapters 10 all the way through 13. 
You've got to understand what was happening then to see how Paul, in essence, is hijacking their argument and making it work in favor of Jesus Christ. But these opponents valued boasting in that culture. They apparently, they apparently were swayed by sophists who were prominent throughout Greece, no more so than in Greece. They viewed themselves as self-appointed apostles. Paul says he's experienced belongingness on the road to Damascus with Jesus. But were you there? Were I? No, we didn't see that Jesus. However, the opponents would say, we've got credentials. We've got letters of recommendation that come from Jerusalem. So you Greek Corinthians, you better listen to what we have to say rather than what Paul has to say. And so as the Corinthians are being swayed by the confident boasts coming from these so-called apostles, but false apostles, self-commendation, they would then insist on payment for what they were achieving, and then out would come the wallets at this point. In that time period, great leaders, not infrequently, would write their memoirs of their exploits that were nothing more, in essence, than uh, their own personal eulogies, where they would detail their, their triumphs, battles won, great speeches delivered, tremendous wisdom displayed as the captives were subdued. Paul will have none of that. And so he will take their word boast and turn it upside down on them. And instead of talking about their form of boast, let's talk about an alternative form of boast that seizes the mindset now of the Corinthians. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So what he's saying here at this point is that when I appeared on the scene, it was constructive. The purpose was to build up the believers. There was purposeful relationships. But subsequent once I left, along comes these false apostles who, instead of being constructive, were destructive. Aim their artillery at me. Aim their artillery at the gospel of grace. And what he then is informing you and informing me at this point is that these people were destructive when it comes to what matters most, constructing something for themselves, but destructing something with regard to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. So now in the give and the take of what's occurring here, the apostles are going to have to figure out, okay, they're attacking my apostleship. And in attacking my apostleship, it's my apostleship that gives me credibility to be able then to communicate the integrity of God's word. Ever ponder the fact that the word credibility has both C-R-E-D in it, cred from what we get, the word creed, what we believe, as well as ability? So he had the credibility, he had the creed ability to take truth and translate it practically into life. These people lacked creed. They just simply had the ability to take down what the Apostle Paul had built up. You ever felt like somebody's tearing down what you have so built up? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's Christian community. Well, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, he says. He's still trying to defend himself. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. 
but his bodily presence is weak. By now, what they're doing at this point is still aiming their artillery at him. And they're saying this Apostle Paul, he's inaccessible. He's a distant, remote kind of guy. There's hypocrisy between the way in which he claims when he's distant from us and the way he lives when he's close up near us. And so there's this sense of criticism that once again is being leveled against him. And so notice their standards, their values. They're saying his letters are weighty. We'll give you that, strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account, but who's to measure what is good speech, what is bad speech? The criticisms, they keep it coming. When Colonel George Washington Gaythos, the man responsible for the completion of the Panama Canal, had big problems with the climate and with the geography. But his biggest challenge was the growing criticism back home from those who predicted he'd never finished the project. So finally, a colleague asked him, aren't you going to answer your critics? In time, answered Gathos. When? His partner asked. When the canal is finished, responded Gathos. Haddon Robinson describes a young musician's concert poorly received by the critics. So a famous composer consoled him by patting him on the shoulder and then said, quote, Remember, son, there is no city in the world where they have erected a statue to a critic. Unquote. Felt like you've been under the barrage from those that even are close to you, let alone further from you. Keep on keeping on. Finish the canal. Do something that is of such significance that people are focusing, having to focus not on you, but upon Christ and what he is doing in you, what he is doing through you, what he's done for you, and all for, all for his glory, not ours. For you see, Paul's opponents were all about their glory, not God's, even though they were using religious terms to talk about God. They lacked a relationship with God. You're up to verse 11. Because in verse 11, now the apostle says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. There is consistency, you see, here between what he claims and, and how he lives. And then in verse 12, we've got a problem on our hands here because these people like to classify. The religious religious adversary, the one who is out to impose an alternative to grace, doesn't understand the parable that Jesus told, where some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt had to deal with this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. This man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that stands out for me. Because, you see, there's a powerful statement by C.S. Lewis of years past. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See the difference? You can be both confident yet humble, like a Bronson standing before his court. You can be confident and humble when you're positioned in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I will add, Others more. But you see, they're classifying like that Pharisee in an adversarial viewpoint in comparison to the tax collector. And now here's Paul's adversaries. And verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves, think that Pharisee in Jesus' illustration, the parable, when they measure themselves by one another, they're in their own groupthink experience at this point, you see. They are of the self-congratulatory circle and compare themselves with one another. They are without understanding. Why? This is self-praise, but they have set the standard for what's acceptable before God. But... Paul understands that it is God who sets the standard of what is acceptable before God. And God's standard is such that there is none righteous. There is a no, not one. No exclusion clauses are found in that section of Paul's writings, you see. And so what we need to do at this point is we need to do what the Apostle Paul did at this point. We need to be able to demonstrate a sense of compassion like he did for the people in Corinth who didn't feel like they could measure up to what the, the so-called righteous standards of the false apostles were producing salvation by works rather than biblically what Paul had addressed, salvation by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone, you see. Paul demonstrated compassion. When Edgar Guest, the American poet writer, was a young man, his first child died. Some of us in this congregation have gone through these experiences. Guest wrote, There came a tragic night when our, our child was taken from us. and I was lonely. I felt defeated. There didn't seem to be anything in life ahead of me that mattered very much. So I had to go to my neighbor's drugstore, the pharmacy, the next morning for something, and he motioned for me to step behind the counter with him. I followed him into his little office at the back of the store, and he, he put both hands on my shoulders, and he said, Ed, I can't really express what I want to say. The sympathy I have in my heart for you. 
Sometimes words can't match feelings, nor feelings words. All I can say is that I'm sorry. I want you to know that if you need anything at all, come to me. What's mine is yours. Years later, a guest reminisced and said, quote, just a neighbor across the way, a passing acquaintance. Jim Potter, the pharmacist, may long since have forgotten that moment when he put his hands on my shoulders, gave me something that I will never forget in all my life. To me, it stands out like a silhouette on a lonely, of a lonely tree against a crimson sunset. And sometimes we need those trees to stand out in the midst of the lonely sunsets of life. You see, when being personally attacked, defending the faith, there's a Brunson moment that leaps out of these pages. When the first of the two reminders is there, remember to, number one, focus upon Christ alone. So physically speaking, if you're under attack and you feel like your eyes are just moving from left to right and up to down, you start off with your focus. Get it right. Move from your blepo through your theoreo until you get to your arao experience. When being personally attacked, defending the faith, remember to first of all focus upon Christ alone and be aware, broadly speaking, but be focused like a Verlander on a Saturday night, narrowly speaking. And now you're ready then for your second reminder that flows out of verse 13 down through verse 18. That second of all, when being personally attacked, defending the faith, remember to boast in Christ alone. Uh, he's not going to let go of their favorite word. But he's going to turn it upside down and use it for Christ rather than against Christ. Use it to establish the teachings of grace rather than against grace and promote a false religiosity of works. And so we, but we, will not boast beyond, beyond limits. Now what's over? We know our limits. But we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned us to, assigned to us, to reach, to reach even you. And then I'm reminded of that plaque in the Oval Office that Ronald Reagan would look at on a daily basis. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. And so now the Apostle Paul is saying, we know our limits. This is not about self-credit. This is about recognizing the credit rooted in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the biblical boast stands out. We will not boast beyond limits. We know what it means to be in Christ. We will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. But now you catch your breath in verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So now the Corinthian people are going to have to think about the fact that these false apostles that are critiquing Paul or Johnny's come lately, as you see, 
but the Apostle Paul pioneering in his effort to communicate the gospel of grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone got there, cared enough to be constructive. These folks are destructive. He's focused upon Christ. They're focused upon their form of religiosity. He, for 18 months, established his cred, his creed, his credibility, giving them the ability to work out the creed in a practical way so they could minister effectively to others, and then onward he would go. Work out your creed before others. Use the abilities that God has given you. Impact others for Jesus Christ. We are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way, not them, with you with the gospel. But now he once again captures their favorite word at this point. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. As they think about the truths that the Apostle Paul had shared with them, and they're now growing in the grace that God has given them. And likewise, even when you're under attack at this point, you've got the opportunity then to be able to talk about the way in which God has worked powerfully in you, and then watch how God is working powerfully through you to be able to do what otherwise you couldn't do because you went through some hard times. Maybe you didn't have a Brunson moment. But you were given the opportunity in the midst of your hard times to stand up, stand out, stand strong, and to be able to say, I love Jesus. And they blink when they look at you and they wonder, and how do you do what you do and why do you believe what you believe when you've gone through what you've gone through in life? And you realize he's faithful even when life is so faithless. And then you find yourself rooted in verse 17. Because in verse 17 at this point, he says, okay, let the one who boasts, if you're going to do it, here's where you do it. Boast in the Lord. Position yourself in Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And so you see, their objective in relating to the Corinthian people was self-commendation. But the crux of the division between Paul and his opponents is the question, whose approval, whose approval do we truly seek? You see, that brief question forces us to consider the background of the revelation of the truth in the scriptures in Jesus Christ. It cuts through our dilemmas and orients us to want to please God rather than others. Paul's desire was to please the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his life and his service. Is that yours? A Brunson stands at his tribunal. I love Jesus. I love Turkey. The Apostle Paul at his final tribunal will hear Christ say, Well done, good and faithful servant. People, 
don't be afraid of the tribunals of life. They shrink in comparison to that final tribunal where Jesus Christ looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's stand together. So who are we trying to please? Whose approval are we seeking? Help us, Father, when we're being attacked. When we're being attacked, whether we know it explicitly or implicitly, there's something at stake in terms of Christianity and the way in which we respond. It's not what life does to us that counts. It's what life reveals about us that counts. Like a Brunson, help us to keep our tribunals in proper perspective and remind ourselves on a daily basis we will be standing before the one where we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll be standing there based upon not our works, but based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, for which we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.